1: Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
0: So now I'm finally here, in an ashram in the foothills of the Himalayas. It looks like something out of Lost Horizon, that famous movie from the 30s. And I thought, well, I'll be here a couple of days with the Guru, and then I'd be banished back to the West, but not at all. Maharaji asked me if I was going to join Ram Dass and a few others further up into the mountains to do Buddhist meditations. Actually, Ramdas had yet to arrive back in the mountains, but he had arranged for a Buddhist meditation teacher to come be with a group of us for a couple of months. Of course, I said, yes, not believing that I got to stay. Now I'm thinking that I have a guru now, and I should ask for a mantra or something. And I said, Maharaji, how should I meditate? And Maharaji said, do as Jesus did and see God in everyone. Take pity on all and love all as God. When Jesus was crucified, he only felt love. Well, that was way, way beyond what I was expecting. I mean, I was thinking I'd get like a TM mantra or something. So suddenly this whole experience was escalating way beyond my normal concept of reality. Well, Ramdas came the next day, and I told him what Maharaji had said when I asked how to meditate. But I thought maybe he could ask how Christ actually meditated since he had kind of a more familiar relationship with Maharaji. So the next morning off we go to the temple and Ramdas asks Maharaji, how did Christ meditate? Well, the next moments were defined by a state that I had never before experienced. Maharaji sat there, closed his eyes, and then suddenly tears rolled down his cheeks. And all of us that were around him at that time was about four or five people, Ram Das, Krishnas, myself, Ramesh. We were like kids when your parents cry and you don't know why you're so too young. And then Maharaji said, he never died. He never died. He kept repeating it over and over. He never died. He was lost in love. He was one with all beings. He had great love for all in the world. He lives in the hearts of all beings. Now, you have to understand that I was brought up Jewish and never even read the New Testament, and now I'm in India with a supposedly Hindu guru, and he's transmitting the essence of Christ consciousness. Amazing, and really beyond my poor, feeble, rational mind. Well, nonetheless, it was the beginning of my opening To another world.
2: It's the same thing that Buddha had said, you see, in his Four Noble Truths. He went and he sat under the Bodhi tree and he came back and he said, Well, here's the way it is, everybody. I can put it down in four statements. So simple. All life is suffering, birth is suffering, death is suffering, growing old is suffering. Not getting what you want is suffering, getting what you don't want is suffering, even getting what you want is suffering because you're going to lose it. The greatest pleasure, your body at the height of its thing is going to grow old. Your physical beauty is going to pass, your intellect's going to fail. All suffering, every way you look is suffering. Like I said all life is suffering. Number two is the cause of suffering is craving. If you want something and you can't have it, then you suffer. Third noble truth, and these are pretty noble, Third noble truth is, give up craving and suffering. It's like an elementary school book. Desire creates the universe, my teacher says. Buddha says, give up craving and suffering. You don't desire a universe, the external universe doesn't exist. And the fourth noble truth is the eightfold path of how to get beyond attachment or desire. And the eightfold path is very similar similar to Raja Yoga. Then my one meal a day was brought to me at around noon. Now this meal consisted primarily of grains. It was primarily, it was called kejri, which is a combination of rice and dal, which is a, like a lentil. And now and then there was sabji, or a vegetable, and a chapati, which is made of whole wheat flour and water. So that was it. That was my food for the day, right? Now, the way you work in doing sadhana is that every act you perform becomes a method of taking you to this other state of consciousness. You're trying to change your vantage point, your perceptual vantage point, and everything you do has got to be a device to help you get to that place. From a Western point of view, you're doing a complete cognitive reorganization. You're changing your reference point. You're changing the core concept around which the whole constellation of thought is built. And therefore, you have to take every act and redefine it and develop new habits of thought for thinking about it. So I'll give you an example. You take a piece of food like this, you're offered food. Now, in the old days, you'd sit down, and sometimes when you got into these particularly phony families, they'd say, Grace. And it was like, you know, all right, come on already, you know. and it. Great functions, they'd say long graces, you know. Rabbis would get up and go on for long periods of time and so on, and they bless Lyndon Johnson in the Vietnam War, and you know, they do the whole trip.
1: Right?
2: <laughs> brahm arpanam, Brahma, Karma, Samadina, Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Devo Mahishwara, Guru Sakshat, Param Brahma Tasmai, Sri Guru venamaha Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Translation First thing is, this ritual that I'm going through now is Brahma. In other words, now I've got to stop for a moment, for those of you that are new in this game, to explain the meaning of Brahma. Here is the gross universe. Your bodies, this table, this microphone, it's all gross. Come in through your senses, right? Gross energy, slowed down, way slowed down. Mass energy, you all understand that, so we can go through that quickly. Then you get to finer energies like thought. That's just energy slowed down less, faster, finer, faster and finer. Light is such an energy. Keep going finer and finer and finer until you get to the unit of energy which is so fine, or the unit of stuff, you can call it, that is so fine that it's interchangeable in everything in the universe. It's what the air is made up of, it's what light's made up of, it's what thought's made up of, it's what gross things are made up of, right? That all is still form, it's still in the form of energy. It's just very fine energy, it's called prakriti in the particular system, the Hindu system, this particular Patanjali system. Prakriti is the finest level of form, the converse side of which is the formless That is the akash, or that place where it all is behind form. Now, if you just think of this as a set of levels, hypothetically for the moment, if you haven't experienced these, and if you've watched it all happen, it's one thing, but if not, theoretically you go through these levels. So you go gross, finer, 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 to the finest type of stuff, and then all of that is contained within and is the opposite side of, and is in continuous cycle of emerging and disappearing with that which is formless, which is behind it. That which is formless, which is behind it, which contains all, is what's called Brahma. It's called the Akash, it's called Purusha, it's got lots and lots of names to it. And that place which is behind is stable, it's always the same, it's never changing, and all the stuff when it comes down into form, when it the Prakriti starts to work and creates manifest and manifestations. That's all sort of like illusion. It's just happening and all going back into this place, which always is. And all of this is it in a solid form. Solid nothingness or fullness, however you want to play it. doesn't mean empty, as you can understand, because it's everything. It's everything and nothing. It's all and everything. It's the clear white light. You know, right? Except it's beyond that. It's beyond any polarities, any labels, any. It's not white because it's not dark, you know, it's not anything. It's everything. All right, that's Brahma, right? So everything you see, now you go back to the apple, and what have we got is the statement, the ritual I am going through is part of Brahma. You see, my thought about doing this thing is part of Brahma. The offering, meaning the apple, is Brahma. He who is making the offering, meaning me, I'm part of Brahma. The fire to which the offering, the fire that's consuming the offering, meaning my hunger, that's also Brahma. And he to whom I'm making the offering, that's also Brahma. I mean, in, in other words, if I can conceive of any finite form which I'll call God, see, keep in mind that's just another manifestation of Brahma. Right one level down, it's in form, it's finite. Then the last line of that is, he who keeps in mind that all is Brahma goes to Brahma, becomes enlightened, in other words. And then the next part of it is, you offer it, you, you reverence it, and you offer it to Brahma, which is not that Brahma, it's, Brahma then manifested initially in the Hindu pantheon in three manifestations. There were three initial manifestations. Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva. Brahma is the creator, Vishnu the preserver, and Shiva the destroyer. And so you offer it to each of these three initial manifestations called the godheads, the Godhead. And then that's uh, Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Devo Maheshwara, that's Shiva. Guru Sakshat is the Shiva, the Shakti, Shiva Shakti, the female energy component. You offer it to the female energy component. Param Brahma is the super Brahma. That's that one back there we were talking about that you remembered you're part of. And finally, you reverence the lotus feet of your guru. And then you ask for peace. Now, you see how eating now, let's show, see what happens after you've done all that. And then you start to eat. Because this is the game I got caught in. You see, I didn't mind giving up sex because after all, you're sitting in India anyway. where you'd hardly ever see the women because they're all hiding behind doors anyway. And it was all right. It was an interesting thing to be doing while I was in India, giving up sex. And I didn't mind being cold and I didn't mind all the other things. But I'm a very oral guy. See, who I was would say I am a very oral guy coming out of a good Jewish family where food and love and all that were all chickens, right? (laughs) (laughs) And therefore, you know, I didn't mind all the rest of the austerities, but when that food came, it could have been swill from the bucket. And it was the food that I was given, and it was... It was steak from Original Joe's, and it was lobster Savannah from Lock Obers, and it was you know it was every possible delicacy. I mean, it was just rice and dal. But as far as I was concerned, I ate it with the same getting completely lost in the joy of eating, right? The, you know that the del- delicacy of the flavor and the joy of swallowing, oh, the whole thing, right? And I'd savor and you know and and. Overload and just eat, and eat and everything that was available, you know. And I kept thinking to myself, "I'm not going to give this up." <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's pushing you, you know. Who you who you who you who you're fighting against? <laughs> so finally, I thought, "See, then what? Here's what happened. Uh, every Tuesday, you don't eat. See, it's Mangalam Day. You fast for day. So." Okay, I can fast for a day. I used to do it on Yom Kippur all the time. But the difference was in Yom Kippur, around the middle of the afternoon, you start to have fantasies about all the food you're going to eat when the fast is past, you see. And now these people don't fast like, you know, it doesn't matter whether they eat or don't eat. Right? You're in a different environment. You're not sitting in the temple with everybody saying, are you going home to cook? No. Okay. Then one day I fasted on Mangalam day, and the next day the guy that usually cooks, the sadhu that usually cooks the food, had a bad tooth, and he went somewhere, or he was something happened. I don't know, and there was no food. So I was being very game about the whole thing, and I just well, listen, I'm a sadhu. I don't what's you know food. I'll just ignore it. So I didn't eat that day. Next day the teacher came, and I said, well, I didn't eat for two days. It's like you know, what happens is, see the. the The very subtle way your ego works is you no sooner finish some little accomplishment on your sadhana, on your spiritual path, than the ego walks behind you and pats you in the back. It's pretty good. (laughs) That's the way it sort of sneaks back in to take over again. So I said to the guru, the teacher, well, I didn't eat yesterday either. Two days I didn't eat. He says, well, um, if it doesn't disturb you, he said, it is good on the full moon every three months to go for nine days.
0: <laughs>
2: well, now. <laughs> right. right. Uh, that's not nine days without liquid. You do take liquid. Right? Just don't take any solid. He says it's good for your intestine. Well, all right. By gosh, I'll do it. Well, you get a little weak around the fourth day, and my fantasies are, you know, I, I would, like, I'd lie in, on my mat. It's not in bed. You're on a mat, see. And i lie on my mat, and I would think about Thanksgiving. <laughs> and I'd think about the squash with the marshmallows on it. And all the things I'd never have again, see. And, oh, I was so full of self-pity. Oh, and I'd recite the whole thing, and I'd... I'd be out raking leaves in my head and I'd smell the turkey cooking. And then I'd go in and I'd see the pumpkin pies. And oh boy, I just created the whole thing. And I spent nine days just locked in oral fantasies of the most extraordinary nature, right? Which, since I hadn't given up a desire or attachment, the act of fasting was, had no spiritual value particularly at all, except it showed me where I wasn't. <laughs> Well, by the second round, I had changed the second three-month time when that came up. So this time, it was very interesting. My fantasies now weren't about turkey or a lobster or any of the things I'd never have again. Now they were about spinach <laughs> <laughs> and big piles of brown rice. You know, all the things I could eat again, I just had limited my fantasy life now to what was going to be available to me. But I was still having these fantasies, and I was still very locked in food and it lasted much through the winter. And then I remember what happened. I tried every device. I tried the uh, the uh, Southern Buddhist meditation, which is like a cemetery meditation where you look at your bags of intestines and you look at the, <laughs> the food as you know worm ridden and all that and you're eating it and you know and Certainly didn't make it a groove, but I still ate with great relish, you know? <laughs> so, all right, worms. You know, some people eat ants. And I couldn't quite break out. I couldn't quite break out. And it was, no matter what I did, when the food came, like, it was just like I was a ravenous animal. It had nothing to do with being a holy man. And I tried very hard all the methods I knew of not, you know, not being attached to the food, but I couldn't work it. And then I started to do a meditation which is by uh, created by um, Ramana Maharshi, called Vichara Atma. And this meditation says, it's a, it's, it says, who am I? I am not my body. And then you feel your body and you experience the I inside your head as separate from the body. Then you say, I am not my senses. And you watch each of the senses receiving its information and you see the eye as separate from that sense. Now that process, for example, when you're sitting in a room and there's a clock ticking and you pick up a book to read, you don't hear the clock tick when you're caught in the book. And then the minute you finish with the book, you hear the clock tick again. Well, you've all had that experience. Well, when the clock is ticking continuously, it continues to tick, your ear continues to receive optic nerve, your auditory nerve continues to receive, but your attention is not there. That's where that break came, and it came involuntarily. Well, you learn to do it voluntarily, to turn off each of these senses, to see it happening. You see your ear hearing, you see your eye seeing, but you see it from the eye place, which is not the air, and it's not the eye, and it's not the skin, and so on. Then you say, I am not the five organs of action, and it's the arms and the legs and the tongue and the anus and the genitals. And You go through each of these and experience it and experience it separate from the eye. Then I am not the five internal organs, and you go through breathing and respiration and excretion and perspiration and digestion. Same way. Then you get to the clincher, which is the last line, which says, I am not this thought. You see? Now you've gotten to the point where... There's just the I thought left in the middle of your head. I, see, I am not this, I am not that, I am not that. Then you say, I am not this thought. Now, the thought, I am not this thought, is the thought you are not. (laughs) Dig that? So, it's just like your thoughts become like on the Times building in New York, where the news is going by on a ticker. That's where your thoughts are. They're out there. And where you are, you can't label, because any label is a thought. All right, you're appreciative of that problem. You see, it's a vehicle for pushing you beyond your mind. It's beautiful. It takes you to the true self, he says, all right? Now, you go into that place, I am not this thought, and then you go back into this first state of bliss. You go into a great calm bliss place. And the minute you slip out, you know, you have another thought, well, who's thinking that? Well, who am I? Well, I am not the, and you go right back in again, see? Well, I worked with it for quite a while until finally I was in this blissful state. And then one day it happened. I was sitting in this state, just sitting there, just sitting there, and the food came along, and I said, Oh, man, it's the food. (laughs) I mean, am I going to stop this for that? (laughs) And... I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? I noticed this, I mean, this really blew my mind to have this happen. It was blowing literally, that was what happened, of course. (laughs) And I thought, well, gee, maybe I can eat without leaving this state. So I started to eat just as if, just, it was just happening, but I wasn't in it. I was watching myself eat. In the Southern Buddhist method, it's called eating, eating. You watch eating, eating, chewing, chewing, swallowing, swallowing. You know, digesting, digesting. Thinking about food, thinking about food. But you who is doing all that is behind all that, the witness. And I watched the whole thing, and all the fun was gone out of eating. Now, what had happened clearly was that I had gone to a place where that attachment, even that attachment, was starting to fall away. And that was the subjective experience that went along with it. That was the first time that had happened for me ever in my life that I could remember about food. It was like you'd just eaten a huge meal, that indifference you have to food. Now you see, the game that I was learning, which is very well reflected in the Satipatthana Vipassana, the Southern Buddhist meditation, is the problem of labeling everywhere your attachment goes, everywhere your mind goes. And by the process of labeling, you extricate yourself from the desire or from the feeling. I'll go through that a little later when I get to meditation. So that was eating. And then after lunch, I'd lay around. Sometimes I'd lie in the sun and make believe I was on the Riviera. (laughs) And beautiful women were feeding me grapes and things. And sometimes I just sat in the sun and prayed to the sun. And I learned mantras, beautiful mantras, like Aditya, Hridayam, Punyam, Savshatru, Bina, Shanam. All evil vanishes from life for he who keeps the sun in his heart. And every time I see the sun in the day when I first come out, the sun is there, the first thing I do, aditya hidayam punyam And I feel that because it's the same thing. Remember I said light, energy, consciousness, love. The sun is consciousness. It's one, it's one level down into grossness because it's in the physical universe. Now I will digress here, when I, since I said in the physical universe to make a very critical point that is going to shake many of you, and I'll say it very baldly. The journey to enlightenment is basically a struggle against nature. And it is only when you are enlightened that you can be once again in form, because at the same moment you are in formlessness. And nature is form. Now, what I mean by nature is the following. It's everything from Purusha below Purusha. All forms of energy, no matter how fine they are. Your mind is part of energy. Your body's part of of nature. Your body's part of nature. Electricity's part of nature. Light's part of nature. The trees are part of nature. All your senses are part of nature. The image is given by Ramakrishna. The story is really comes from the Ramayana by Tulsidas. When Rama, this very pure reincarnation of God, was sent out into the woods, he went off with his wife Sita, who was a very pure woman, and Lakshman, his brother, who reverenced his brother Ram very much, because Ram was God in this incarnation. And what happened was that Lakshman would walk third in line, and therefore, during the jungle paths, he would never see uh, Ram. And every now and then, Sita would stand aside on the path so Lakshman could see Ram. And that is the way in which the Hindus conceive of nature as being the mother nature, or Maya, or illusion, or that which is form, which hides you from experiencing that other place to the extent that you're attached to it. And it is within that context, then, that you can understand the meaning of what sexual continence is about, you see, because sexual continence would seem to go against our responsibilities as evolutionary beings within the species and for reproduction of the species. Now that's, that's very heady stuff to think about, because when you see the cycle, the way it works, there is what we have called Darwinian evolution, or the evolution of the species, which is all in nature, bringing man up to the point where he has an intellect, a rational mind, which is then capable of knowing itself which is the first vehicle that is suitable for the breakthrough to see the fact that all of this is illusion. Pure consciousness has existed in everything always, in always the same way. So it is only that in the evolutionary cycle, man gets to the, they get to the point where you have a human birth where you can be conscious of the ignorance you have lived with but you've always been fully conscious. It's always been there in you, in every organism, in everything. Same consciousness. This is all consciousness. This is all consciousness. Now, if you wanna see the way, if you wanna feel your way through how it works, see, there's there's a hard time we in the West have with the word like soul, but the way in which the Hindus conceive of it is that at the moment of conception, when the sperm and the egg, sperm fertilizes the ovum. At that moment, you enter. You enter in your full, full consciousness into that natural phenomenon, into that part of nature. Now, the reason you, what is you that enters? You can think of you that enters as composed of two components. One is pure Atman, it's called, which is that which is God in all of us, which is that element of consciousness which is pure and untouched. It's the Purusha. It's that little bit of Purusha that's in you in, in, in this particular form, although all your cells are that too in another level. I hope I'm not confusing you. I'm trying to get this across. Now, what else is there that is you at that point? What else there is that is you is what would be called your sanskaras. That is, your potentials or your uniquenesses that you're bringing from previous runs on the cycle, previous runs into nature. You're going in and out of nature. And you pick up so much disequilibrium. It's really what what, what sanskaras boil down to, is the relationship of the three gunas, of Rajas, Thomas, and Satwig, of pure purity, energy, and lethargy, or darkness, movement, and lightness. When these are in pure balance, you are in the Purusha, you're pure consciousness, you're an enlightened being. But the minute there's a disbalance, which is like, it's like um, maybe uh, a... Uh, A free-moving electron goes through a field and creates a whole scene around it of disequilibrium. That's the level at which you can think of the prime cause, if you want to play with prime cause, although it's a reasonably trivial question to play with, because we can't solve it. But if you think about this disequilibrium, you come into that fertilized ovum as merely Atman encased in that disequilibrium proportion or that propensity. But that propensity is what determined what ovum you come into, which is determines your whole life experience. That is your karma that you're going to live out in this lifetime. Now, you've got to understand that the place you came from, the Atman, that place behind it all, is outside of time. And this is finally the area where Western physics is finally getting close to the place because they are finally dealing with the matter of the relative nature of time. And that time is merely cr- is our construct, rather than the way in which it all is. Now, you come from this timeless place, and what determines, you see, and this, by the way, is where astrology comes into it, you see, because the particular configuration of planets at that point of your, of the fertilization, is a, is a, through probably a magnetic field of some sort at that level of energy, a very pure form of energy, is a determinant of the chemical makeup of that organism, of the, uh, you could call it, the endocrine system. That's a reasonable way in which they're linked. That various planetary configurations is just like, I mean, the simplest way of saying it is, Our body is 90 some odd percent water and the moon makes the tides go up and down and the moon affects our bodies also because they're mostly water. Well, in the same way, the different chemical compositions of the different planets have magnetic pulls on the different chemical compositions in our body and the different organs or endocrine systems have different chemical makeups and they are differentially affected by these planetary configurations. It seems very big and very little to be related, but there is a relationship.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Stop for a moment and think about something you'd like to get off your chest. Maybe you're holding on to secrets, fears, or frustrations. It's not healthy to keep that all bottled up inside. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, develop coping skills, and much more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/slash today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P dot com slash ROMDOS.